Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking time to join us today. My name is Jean Walsh, and I'm a client advisor in the North American Institutional Business here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. As part of our 2021 long-term capital market assumptions, which were released last week, we published four thematic papers underlying the assumptions. Our call today is dedicated to one of those theme papers, the investment implications of climate change policy. And the paper can be found on our website at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash institutional forward slash LTCMA. I'm pleased to introduce the authors of the paper, my colleagues, Jennifer Wu, Head of Sustainable Investing for Asset Management, Ben Mandel, Global Strategist in our Multi-Asset Solutions Group, and Vincent Juvin, Global Market Strategist. So climate change and economic policy is a very timely topic around the globe and one that impacts all of us, both personally and professionally. Today, we aim to demystify climate change investing by addressing three key areas. What climate change means for economics and policy, what the impact is to markets and asset prices. Jennifer, Ben, and Vincent, great to have you all on the call today. Great to be here. Thanks, Jean. Great to be here. And Jean, great to be there indeed. Great. So let's start by level setting with you, Jennifer, as the head of sustainable investing for asset management. Can you comment on what's happening around climate change policies? the impact of technology, and how investor and consumer expectations are changing? And has any momentum been lost with COVID? Absolutely, Jean. Let's do a little bit of level setting, and then we'll come back to the policy side. So let's start with climate change, right? Climate change is a global crisis. We have seen how there's been unprecedented increase in concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that's global temperature is already one degree Celsius above the pre-industrial average. And what that means is that on the physical impact side, the science already shows that how over time, with stronger positive carbon cycle feedback, extreme weather will have material impact on agriculture, human health, mortality, labor productivity, and even increase in crime. To prevent the worst from happening, there is greater recognition now that changes need to be made to how we produce and consume on a daily basis in order to drastically reduce our environmental footprint. And the reality is also that we have more technology than ever before, and we have really come a long way with innovation. It's not just energy sector with solar and wind as renewables. There is also electric vehicles and battery storage technologies that are already two, I think everyone would agree, dominant forces today. There is also energy-efficient farming, precision agriculture technology, so on and so forth. We're talking about innovation across all sectors. And I think one key thing to remember is that climate, as we said in the report, is a public good, global public good. So climate transition policies cannot be ignored when we look at the economic cycles, which is what LTCMA this year is about, especially when both physical and monetary measures are heading towards the same direction to address climate crisis. As an example, in Europe, we see how the European Green Deal of 1 trillion euro plus 
the European Central Bank making climate at the center of its mandate for asset purchasing. And on your point with regards to COVID, I think in my view, the momentum hasn't really been lost with COVID. In fact, the pandemic has really acted as a facilitator. Not only it has raised awareness amongst investors and corporates about the potential impact of systemic issues such as the pandemic, climate change, but also it has taught us a very good lesson about the importance of being prepared. So all in all, I think it's really, really important to understand how these different climate policies are going to play out and what is their impact on our macroeconomic views, not 20 years from today, but really starting from now. And that's what our research has set out to do. That's great. So clearly important and impacting all of us every day. And from a macro perspective, in the paper, you write that transition to a low-carbon economy could be stick-based with governments mandating sustainable behavior or carrot-based with governments incentivizing green behavior through subsidies. Ben, as a global strategist, can you give us some examples of these two approaches and how they could impact economies and markets? And importantly, also, what are the implications for our LTCMA? Yeah, thanks, Gene. So just to start out, it's a tricky proposition trying to figure out what this means for economic growth over the next 10, 15 years. And that's really what we're trying to do in our long-term capital market assumptions. As we think about what do we get out of markets over that time horizon, uh, first approximation, and I think a pretty decent one, is what do we get out of the economy? Right? So what is the global economy and growth telling us over that? And then, of course, we have various risk premia off of that level. But that level is super important. And so really the question is, what does climate change, and to Jennifer's point, what does more imminent climate change policy reaction mean for those growth outcomes over the next 10 to 15 years? And I think I'd compartmentalize it into two parts. First is, what is the effect on real GDP, so real growth, and then what is the effect on inflation? On the first one, kind of counterintuitively, climate change does not appear to be a huge directional influence on real GDP growth over the next 10 to 15 years. I say counterintuitively because we started this project, my strong prior was that there's a ton of negative convexity in our numbers coming from climate change. But I think that's a bit misleading in the sense that that negative convexity is a really much longer-term issue. So what we're really talking about is temperature rising over the next 70 years, 80 years, and what that does to economic growth. And over that time horizon, there's clearly a lot of downside risk as higher temperatures feed back into an array of negative externalities for growth. But really what we're dealing with is how do we get the incentives right over the next decade for that transition to take place? And what is the cost of getting that transition underway? And so really what you're talking about is something on the order of one percentage point of 2030 growth that you're trading off for anywhere between five and 10 percentage points in the year 2100. So we're making those long-term trade-offs over time. And over the next decade, what we care about is that transition cost, which ends up being low on average. You know, if you just take one percentage point and amortize it over a decade, it's not huge in the context of our assumptions. The other thing is timing. So there's a whole array of different timing outcomes that could transpire vis-a-vis that policy response. You could have a Green New Deal where we front-loaded the transition. You see some evidence that that's gathering pace in some places, but not all, 
On the other hand, you could have a climate Minsky moment in the event that really governments don't get their act together in terms of climate regulation and the private sector is late to the game and then it's more backloaded and disorderly. So we don't have a strong view on which one that is other than to say that we've already seen a lot of progress and momentum and policy that's begun. So maybe, you know, if you had to guess, it's not going to be that backloaded chaotic outcome. It'll be a little bit more front-loaded, but there's nonetheless a lot of uncertainty around that. And so small average effects on growth, a lot of uncertainty around the timing over the next decade. I think we're in a position to be a little bit more concrete about the effect on growth is on inflation. Climate change is one of several factors that will contribute to upside risk to inflation over the next 10 to 15 years. As the person who helps contribute the inflation forecast for our long-term assumptions, I can tell you it's been kind of a sleepy area over the last few years in the sense that all the factors driving inflation were pointing in the same direction, which was lower inflation. That's technology adoption, demographics, globalization, monetary policy having difficulty at the zero lower bound. All those things suggested spending a lot more time at low levels of inflation than high. I think what's interesting this year is that several of those factors have shifted into neutral and some have actually pushed to the other side of the ledger as upside risk to inflation. And we're adding a few additional risks, including climate change, to the things that could cause inflation to rise in due course over the next decade. And so climate change is another finger on the scale on our inflation outlook. And I think that's a very important narrative in thinking about where's inflation in 10 years' time, what are interest rates in 10 years' time, what are parts of the economy and markets that benefit or lose as a result of those higher inflation outcomes. So it's a very significant implication for the way we think about the long term. All of that is to say that we see climate change as a very important aspect of the risk profile around our overall return assumptions, but there's some nuance there, and it's not just about physical risk. Thanks, Ben. Shifting from the macro that you described to more micro, Vincent, you're sitting in Luxembourg at the moment. Given your experience as a global market strategist, could you shed some light on changes taking place in different countries and regions? and how to think about investing differently in equity markets, for example. Yes, certainly, Gene. And uh, Ben just finished with the statement, it's not about only physical risk, and indeed, it's about risk of policy change. Like Jennifer alluded to in her introduction, we see that climate change is real. It is actually becoming a bigger problem, which needs to be addressed by policymakers quite rapidly. And some are doing actually a pretty good job. Some are a bit more advanced than others in this space. And what we really looked at in our research paper, it's not the impact of the physical risk, but clearly the impact of the policy risk. What does that mean? And you alluded to, Jim, in your question, you see policymakers can use a more carrot-based approach or a more stick-based approach. We're probably likely to see both, given the challenge that lies ahead of us. In Europe, most countries remain so far signatories of the Paris Climate Agreement. We all know that it's not sufficient anymore. Jennifer reiterated where we are, where we are there in our, let's say, climate ambition. We are behind the curve clearly, and COVID provided only temporary relief in this respect. So we need to go beyond this, and we have heard recently many countries pledging to get to carbon neutrality by either 2050 or 2060. It's been the case of the UK, of Europe, of China more recently. We may see it in the US as well in January. That's one of, obviously, of the commitment of Joe Biden, uh, one of the key elements of its program. So really, it's not a theme which is in over 
10, 15 years, it is already playing out at the moment. And carbon neutrality by 2050, this means reaching peak emission in the next 10 years. So countries are using, and we see it in Europe at the moment, obviously carrot-based approach, and we may see that in the U.S. as well. And Ben mentioned the positive impact that it can have from an economic perspective. This can obviously offset the negative coming more from a seed-based approach, but carrots clearly include massive fiscal stimulus. We have already alluded to the Green Deal in Europe, but it's not the only thing that we have in Europe at the moment. We had also a couple of years ago, the so-called Juncker Plan or the European Fund for Strategic Investment, which also revived investment in the region into infrastructure, into renewable, into research and development in all these fields. And something we may well have in, in the U.S. as well, as there also the Democrats have announced a 1.7 trillion stimulus to obviously invest infrastructure. So these current, this carrot-based approach is going to generate opportunities, and we will discuss it later on during this call for what it means for infrastructure, for alternative assets, and so on. But clearly, it opened up opportunities for a lot of business. You need, as an investor, to be aware of it, to be positioned on those business, which can capture those growth opportunities driven by, let's say, the carrot-based policies which are deployed by government. We need also to be aware that it's not going to be sufficient. We're going to see a stick-based approach as well. What does that mean? Often it sees higher carbon price, uh, carbon tax has been discussed quite a lot already globally, but it's something which is gaining traction, maybe not in the form of a tax per se, but you know, we have this so-called emission trading scheme globally, which are well developed in Europe, which allow indeed to price carbon. And in Europe at the moment, the metric ton of carbon is priced at roughly $30 per metric ton of CO2, which is quite high, not enough to meet our climate goal, but it's much higher than globally. If you look at the average price globally that a U.S. company or global company would be confronted with, it's around $2. So, so far, these higher carbon prices in Europe have been pretty much a headwind for European corporates. We had to face higher internal costs than our global peers, but things are changing due to the fact that more and more countries are using this stick-based approach, we'll see that as of next year, China is going to deploy, thanks to the merger of several regional emission trading schemes, the largest emission trading scheme in the globe, and will join Europe in this space. So we have one certainty, is that carbon price are only going up. And even for those who don't have their own ETS system in place and who don't apply those higher carbon prices, they will be charged anyway, because those countries which have this system in place are going to implement a border carbon border adjustment mechanism, which are already discussed at the moment between Europe and China, to give you an example. So it's really, from an investment point of view, and your question was more on the micro, it's obviously for us as investors to identify the relative winner and loser of the deployment of those policies globally. It's not about good or bad countries, good or bad sector. It's about those who can adapt. And in our research, we looked at from a country perspective, those which had the fiscal capacity to adjust to climate change, to decarbonize their economies. You see that you see countries like Russia, India, South Africa, but also Canada will experience difficulties because they score very poorly on these metrics, while countries obviously like Europe, Switzerland, Japan, score much better 
Also from a sector perspective, really the idea there is not to be, let's say, climate evangelist. It's about really looking at the relative winner and loser within every sector. It's not about being long renewable and short fossil fuels. It's identifying with it each sector those who can produce the same goods and services with a lower carbon intensity. Because carbon prices are going up, so a high carbon intensity means over time lower margin and lower performance for investors. So clearly for us, this is one of the consequences that we derive from these policy developments. This could have obviously effect in terms of leadership from a regional perspective. We have seen over the last 10 years that the U.S. was clearly leading on financial market was something so-called like the U.S. exceptionalism, driven obviously by the tech sector. This may change. The countries which have invested the most in this new green economy, which is unfolding at the moment, or Europe, for instance, which invests for since many years in R&D in this field, which use fiscal support to really support this area of its economy, or even China. When you look at China, even if China is one of the biggest greenhouse gas producers globally, it produces 72% of world solar modules, 69% of lithium batteries, and so on and so on. So these are the type of conclusions that we can draw from a microeconomic perspective on financial markets, and which we believe are very important for investors listening today. Thanks, Vincent. And Jennifer, for our institutional investors, what advice do you have? Is this a directional bet on growth, or what would you say to investors who are still hesitant or maybe on the fence about climate-related investments? Yeah, that's a great question. If we just think about the scale of how much of our economy, like Vincent was saying, needs to be decarbonized in order to keep the global temperature rise at below 1.5 degrees Celsius, I think you can quickly realize how big of an investment this actually represents as we need to revamp almost our entire infrastructure. So in my view, this really is a um, what I call once-in-a-lifetime type of opportunity because we're really looking at the retirement, rehabilitation, and the rebuild of infrastructure at massive scale. So the first that I think investors need to look into is to ask the question around what assets in your current portfolio is potentially at risk. And also what investors need to focus on is to identify, like Vincent said, who are better positioned comparing to their peers across key sectors such as utility, transport, energy, machinery, and even auto. And let's not forget, on the other end of the scale, there are lots of new investment opportunities, right? They're everywhere from how we source energy, produce electricity, consume water, heat our houses, move from one place to the other. All of these represent, in my mind, a new asset class that can generate steady income for investors. And I think that's something that we should keep in mind as we move into the new economic cycle. One thing really interesting is that if you look at it, Many of these technologies are actually owned by new ventures and private companies. So another good reason as to why we need to think about climate change as we look at allocation to alts. We also, I think, need to be quite mindful of climate policies that are already in place and their impact on global companies. Because we know that in different jurisdictions and countries, these things are continuing to be evolving. But if we look at, for example, internationally, new policy agenda such as cross Order adjustment tax in the EU, that is going to impact companies that do business either in Europe or with European companies. So it's going to be really difficult for private sector companies alone to solve this. 
And that is why government support and physical support is a must in order to turn, say, U.S. companies equally, if not more competitive. So I guess what I would recommend is that in conclusion, with all of these government policies, such as green subsidies, direct investment in R&D, as well as regulations around energy efficiency, emission standards, and on top of all of the technology advancement that we talked about, carbon transition has to be top of mind for investors when they consider their capital allocation. It's not a directional bet on growth. It is just something that needs to be integrated into how you think about asset valuation, credit rating, strategic asset allocation, because it is going to impact every part of your portfolio. Thanks, Jennifer. That's sage advice. Just to turn back to Vincent for just a brief comment, we mentioned some alternatives markets. Can you just elaborate just a bit on maybe some examples in alternatives markets with low carbon economy impact, please? Yeah, you're right, Jean. And maybe just to start, we should mention what we do at JP Morgan in, in this field, our own macro funds, uh, JP Morgan Global Macro Opportunities, invest in a thematic way. And at the moment, the climate change theme accounts for almost 10% of the strategy. So to show how important it is for macro funds. But obviously, and Jennifer alluded to already at the need in terms of the infrastructure globally, definitely in the space of climate change to address climate change. This is a huge opportunity for investors as well. You need to be aware that there's, you see, we have seen a huge debt buildup this year to cope with the COVID crisis. Government can support investment in this area, but there are limits to what they can do. What we've seen in Europe is that Europe has worked in a private-public partnership way so far. So really putting public seed capital and really leverage on private capital to really increase the firepower of public investment. And when you look at actually the program of Joe Biden in this space, it is also its ambition to really put $1.7 trillion on the table, to really leverage on private capital to really do even more in this field. So which is a huge opportunity for private investors, which can, through infrastructure funds, really help there in this field. This is something which play out across, let's say, the boards within our alternative platform, just thinking about the transportation business. Uh, JP Morgan, we have invested in new LNG ships, which can carry liquefied gas with less fuel consumption. They consume up to 60% less. To give you an idea, we lease those ships to big oil major, for instance. So it is also a way to really address climate change in our transportation business. So really, across the oil platform, from microphone to infrastructure to transportation, and even within private equity, and Jennifer briefly alluded to, really, we're looking at really new startups in the green field, which also offer great alpha opportunities for our portfolio managers. So really a huge theme across the entire platform on the ad space. Thank you so much, Vincent. Ben, which countries are positioned to most effectively address climate change? I know Vincent mentioned a few at a high level, perhaps EM versus DM, or more specifically, what does it mean for investment opportunities specific to certain countries? Yeah, I think there's a fairly clear EM versus DM implication here. And it's an extension of what Vincent and Jennifer were just talking about. I mean, they're talking about immense heterogeneity across firms, across sectors, across countries. You know, as we think about a broader story in our long-term assumptions, the story of international diversification is one where this year, I think we have maybe more confidence than we have over recent years that 
U.S. equities are not going to dominate over the next 10 years in the same way as they did over the prior decade. And, uh, you know, that story has different aspects to it. Part of it is valuation. You know, U.S. equities are more expensive. Part of it is the dollar and the expectation that the dollar depreciates over time, giving a tailwind to those unhedged U.S. dollar portfolios. And the other is about growth. You know, where's the growth in the world? And the answer to that has been emerging markets, which is part of that diversification story. So I think climate change is kind of a caveat, an important caveat to that idea. As we think about emerging market growth, emerging market equity composition, emerging market policy, all of those things have a different character to them in the next decade than DM. In what sense? In the sense that EM economies themselves are more carbon intensive, the equity indices, in other words, the firms right, that you're actually buying when you buy MSCI EM are more carbon intensive on average than their developed market counterparts. And, you know, Vincent was saying the whole carrot versus stick approach is predicated upon how much fiscal policy is being used to kind of get the incentives right rather than just sort of brute force carbon taxes. And so there's just less fiscal space in emerging market economies on average than developed market economies. And so a little bit more constraint there. So I guess the way I'd characterize it is that that diversification story is really gaining traction, you know, U.S. versus the rest of the world. And then what climate does is is kind of tilts that rest of world allocation slightly in favor of the non-U.S., non-EM allocations. So something like EFA looks good on that score. And as we were discussing earlier, that's an area where actually, you know, they seem to be on the front foot vis-a-vis climate policy and actually using the fiscal space were available to counteract the negative near-term growth effects. So a little bit spread out in terms of those expected returns. That's great. Thank you, Ben. Vincent, maybe perhaps you can comment on how the energy sector is expected to fare with climate change policies and what should investors look for in the energy sector? A good question, Gene, and it's a bit uh, obviously the elephant in the room and, and the most obvious, let's say, possible victim of all these these. But uh, um, it's not the end of the energy sector, but it's probably the beginning of the end of the energy sector as we know it. So this sector, like a lot of other sectors, are going through a major transformation, um, which will affect inequally uh, all corporate, and there will be winners and losers like in like in every sector. So, and clearly that there. Are Different reason to um, to to differentiate uh, between different energy companies. First and foremost, because uh, not every company extracts oil in the same way. Some ways are more polluting than than other, obviously. Uh, so that's uh, that's already a, a very important point. Uh, some have already uh, done a lot to reorient their business to decarbonize their business away from fossil uh, fuel. Uh, fossil, uh, fossil energy. We take the example in a research pa- paper of BP, which has actually set a very ambitious decarbonization strategy uh, with a 40% decline in oil and gas production and to really invest massively in green energy. And what we already see is that those strategies are really bearing fruit. You see that um, it is reflected in the relative valuation of these companies, those which have managed to already transition to uh, new types of energy um, really are trading at a, at a premium on financial market, um, which is also an element we have uh, developed uh, in, our, in our research paper. So 
in the energy sector, like in every sector, it starts looking at the relative uh, uh, winner of the energy transition, those who adapt the fastest, uh, because carbon prices are going up, that's a given. Uh, but those who do not decarbonize enough will also see and face a higher cost of capital. It is more and more difficult for investors to really finance uh, corporates which do little or too little in terms of decarbonization. So, um, Clearly, the transition, the uh, early adoption, uh, adaptation is, uh, is is key for the energy sector. And we have seen a lot of success of big major transforming themselves. So it's not the end of the energy sector, but it's a sector which will go through huge transformation. And it's uh, to, up to active managers to really uh, identify and invest in those uh, relative winners. Thanks, Vincent. Jennifer? How much of this is priced in for investors as people are looking for opportunities to invest? That's a great question. So I would say we are really at the starting point of this, and you can see some signs already. So, for example, in our report, we actually looked into the oil and gas sector. And what we have found is that we're starting to see pretty significant differences within the sector between companies that are in fact embracing clean energy and then really changing their business models versus those that are not. And these differences are slowly starting to be priced in by the market. So with everything that's just been discussed by Ben and Vincent, you know, with more ambitious climate policies inside, and purely from an investment standpoint, this is really about identifying winners and losers. And that it's not just one sector, one country, it's across all sectors in all countries. And it's also not just about public equity, which has been a big focus for especially sustainable investors in the recent couple of years. For example, we can see that companies such as Tesla or in Europe, Orsted, they are really already trading at a pretty high PE. And that is why I think it resonates well with what we're saying this year in LTCMA, thinking about allocating capital to the alt space, because I think while there are still lots of interesting opportunities in the public equity space when it comes to identifying climate transition winners, but you want to look at other parts of your portfolio as well. So, for example, in the fixed income space, we all know about green bonds. This is a market that has really grown quite a lot, especially in the last five years, with steady growth in both supply and demand. And currently, the market size is $850 billion, which is not small. So if we think about how green bond has been trading, yes, it's true that currently green bonds don't seem to offer a significant advantage in terms of financing costs for their issuers, especially when you compare it to traditional bonds. But you know, we believe that with the intervention of central banks, like in Europe, for instance, it will likely increase demand and it's going to reduce the yield of the bond relative to other assets. And I also want to highlight that in spaces green bond, it's quite important to recognize that at the pre-pandemic period, green bond was already at a point whereby demand was surpassing supply. So there is reason for investors to consider green bond for allocation. And that climate policy and how much that's going to influence yield in green bond hasn't really been fully priced in yet. And then the final point that I will mention is that there is also much greater diversity now in different types of financing in fixed income space for green and clean projects, such as transition bonds, as another example, 
right? These are not your typical green bonds because these are typically issuers or projects that are currently in very, what we call like highly polluting industries. And they don't fall under the current green categories. But what they do is going to have a very, very critical impact on whether we can achieve the climate goals that we set out to deliver. And these would be examples like mining, cement and steel, aviation, transportation, etc. But all in all, the good news is that we're really at the start of this great global transformation. So I think by moving early before these risks and opportunities are fully priced in, we believe that investors can capture substantial return as prices continue to adjust. Well, that sounds very promising. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you again for participating today. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. 
JP Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or JP Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, JP Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. Number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited. ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 JP Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.